Uh, well, good to see you. Uh, if I haven't said hello already, my name's John, and uh, I'll add my welcome to Joe's. It's great to, great to see you, especially if you're uh, here for the first time, if you're visiting, uh, a special welcome uh, to you. Great to have you with us today. Uh, as a church, uh, on, on our Sunday mornings when we meet together, we're, we're going through the book of Isaiah. We've been, we started it um, actually this time last year. We haven't done it for a year. We had a, we had a break. We did it for the first part of last year, and we're back in... Uh, the book of Isaiah now, we're going to be looking at it um, uh, for the next six or seven uh, weeks. So can I encourage you, if you've got a Bible uh, nearby, to, um, to, to keep it open, um, round about page uh, 711, uh, Isaiah chapter 28, that's where we're going to be spending uh, most of our time. There'll be some headings on the screen, there's some, uh, if you find it helpful, you can make some notes in your welcome sheet, there's some headings there. Uh, in the welcome sheet as well. Let me, let me pray. Father God, thank you so much that you, that you speak to us. You speak to people who don't really deserve to, to hear your words. And so we pray, please, in your mercy that you'd speak to us this morning and by your spirit, you'd help us to listen and appreciate and understand and respond rightly, respond in, in thanks, in, in worship, in repentance, in obedience. Please do that work. The church, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this week, uh, the UK, including us here in Portsmouth, we experienced the effects of, of Storm Brendan, didn't we? Uh, the road along the, the seafront was, was closed, and um, I, I actually parked my car um, basically as close as I could get. Uh, but a safe distance away. Honestly, Joe, it was a safe distance away. So I, I parked there, and um, I saw the the biggest waves I've ever seen in Portsmouth. They were there was a section they were coming. They kind of it wasn't just like a little bit of splash over the seawall. They were they were properly coming over the seawall. And uh, I had Izzy with me. Um, she was um, she was very excited and slightly terrified all at the same time. It was a, it was quite a good experience altogether. But Storm, Storm Brendan, it didn't, didn't arrive unexpectedly, did it? It had been, it had been forecast. Warnings had been given. People, people should have been prepared for it. The wind and the, the rain picked up as the day went on until finally the full force arrived with, with gale force winds of around 80 miles an hour. One of the roles of Isaiah the prophet was to prepare the people of his time for a coming storm, to, to, to warn them, to, to get them ready, to, to explain why it was coming. It wasn't, it wasn't a literal storm that was approaching. It was something even more powerful, even more terrifying. Isaiah speaks often of a, of a coming judgment from God. The, the, the people who lived in Judah in the south and in the land of Israel in the north, that they'd, they'd turned their backs on God's. That they'd, they'd rejected his words. And the Lord had been so patient with them, so patient with them, year upon year, year upon year, he'd been so patient. But, but through the prophet Isaiah, he warns them that finally the storm of judgment is on its way. It's approaching. And the book, the book of Isaiah, 
It warns of that judgment that's going to come on the land from, from its very beginning. Right back in, uh, in, in chapter 1, um, one of the opening verses, uh, verse 4, chapter 1. Woe to the sinful nation, to a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. You've forsaken the Lord, you've spurned the Holy One of Israel, you've turned your backs on him. And as we read on in the book of Isaiah, it doesn't take long for us to, to read, to hear, what, what form God's judgment is going to take. In chapter 7, Isaiah says that the Lord is going to use the army of Assyria as his means of judgment. He's going he's to whistle them. Chapter 7, verse 18, if I, if I could kind of whistle loudly, I'd do it now. He, he's going to whistle them. He's going to call them down, this great nation, this powerful nation, and use them as his instrument of judgment. He's going to call them down to do his work. And the nation of Assyria are going to march down to the land of Israel, to the land of Judah. They will be the Lord's instrument of judgment. And as we read the book of uh, Isaiah, as, as the people back then heard the words of the prophet Isaiah, it, it's as if the, the storm of judgment is getting closer and closer. With, with, each, with each page that we turn, with, with each oracle that, that the prophet spoke to the people, that the, the wind is picking up, that the sound of destruction is getting louder and louder. Until finally we reach chapter 36. We're going to look at chapters 36 and 37 uh, next week. But let me just read you how um, chapter 36 begins. You can turn to it if you want to. Um, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. The storm of judgment has finally arrived in Israel, in Judah, and it will soon be banging on the door of Jerusalem itself. Now that's the historical context for chapters 28 to 35, which we're going to focus on today. The context is God's judgment, his long-promised judgment, is about to, to arrive. And the key issue in the, in the section we're going to look at today is this. In light of the Assyrian storm of judgment, which is, which is coming down, it's on its way, it's almost there. In light of that, here's the question, here's the key theme. Who are the people going to trust in for protection? Who are the people going to turn to as they face this judgment? They can hear it coming. So what are they going to do about it? Will they, for example, turn to the nation of Egypt, another big superpower of the day? Will they look to Egypt to protect them? Or will they turn to the Lord? Will they, will they seek his mercy? Is, is there any deed of any possibility of God showing mercy to them, even with judgment on the door? They're, they're the kind of key questions that this section deals with. 
And here's the remarkable thing. I'm going to tell you the, the ending before we've even started. The remarkable thing is that for all the people's rebellion, for all their rejection, for all, for, for, for all the fact that the judgment is about to, uh, to arrive, even now, even now, with judgment at the door, the people will just turn to God. He'll have mercy on them. They can still be protected from his judgment. Like, like so much of Isaiah, the book of, uh, the book of Isaiah as a whole, in this section in particular, it's a message of both God's judgment and God's mercy. We, we're not going to look at um, these chapters sort of verse by verse in great detail. It's too big a section. But maybe, maybe you want to, later today, perhaps re- read through them. And, and what's really striking is it, it goes from a message of judgment. You kind of get three or four verses of, of kind of, this. that sounds terrible. And then, and then suddenly there's three other verses and you think that sounds brilliant. That, that, that's kind of, it kind of switches from one to the other. Maybe uh, as Abby was reading, you think, is this good news or bad news? Like you listen to it and it, it sounds really bad. And then suddenly, well, that's a good promise there. That's, that's the way that it goes. That's the way that Isaiah is speaking. And he does that through a series of woes. Woe. We, we, don't, we tend not to use that word very much today. Maybe, well, I don't certainly. Woe. It's a word that you find frequently in the Old Testament. It's always spoken by the prophets. And it's always about giving a warning. It's a, it's a word, woe. It's kind of shorthand for, for watch out. Carries the idea of that there's something you ought to grieve about. Something to be concerned about. Woe to you. Woe. Watch out. Grieve. Be concerned. You can see, just have a little flick through in your Bibles, that, that section. You can see just from the chapter headings, some of the woes. Um, so, so woe to the leaders of Ephraim and Judah. If you turn over the page, chapter 29, woe, woe to David's city. Uh, chapter 30, woe to the obstinate nation. Chapter 31, woe to those who rely on Egypt. There's woe after woe, woe, warning. But after the warning, straight away, there, there comes a wonderful promise. And... Um, and as you read the promises, I think our reaction should be, it should be a wow, not a woe. Wow, God, wow, God is so gracious. He is so kind. Listen to the wonderful promise that he's making. And, and that's, how, that's how this section flows. A woe, a wow, a woe, a wow. And what we're going to do now is just look at some of those woes and look at one of those wow statements. So then firstly... Isaiah says this, Isaiah says, woe to foolish leaders. When things go badly in a, for a company or for a nation, for a sports team, the first place that we generally look at to discover what's gone wrong is, is, is generally at the top, isn't it? The directors of a company or the political leaders of a nation. When a football team is, is bottom of the league, it's normally the manager who gets the sack. And as far as the, the judgment that was about to arrive on the people of Israel and Judah was concerned, the nation's leaders, they were the ones who were primarily responsible. That's why Isaiah's first woe is aimed at those foolish leaders. Verse uh, 7 of chapter 28, just turn to chapter 28, it's where we're going to be most of the time, page 712. 
Verse 7 describes the priests and the prophets, those who claim to be the spiritual leaders. And how are they described? They're described as people who are drunk. Isaiah, he goes into quite a lot of details describing their drunkenness. And in doing so, I think he's emphasizing the fact this wasn't a a one-off incident. It, It wasn't kind of one bad night where the prophets got a bit carried away. It appears this was their their way of life. It was what characterized them. At uh, our student Christmas lunch last month, um, we played a little game on on an app called Heads Up. Maybe some of you have uh, have played it. Um, So you've got a a word on your head. I mean, you've got a phone on your head and it's got a word on it. And other people have to to describe the the words, give give you clues until until the person uh, guesses uh, what it would be. Well, imagine uh, people around the time of Isaiah, they're playing heads up. And, uh, and someone's, someone's, someone's there, and the word that they've got, they've got the priests and the prophets. How, how would people have described the priests and the prophets at the time of Isaiah? I think this is what they might have said. This is what Isaiah would have said. Oh, priests and prophets. Um, always drunk. Always drunk. Smell of beer, smell of beer, is it? That, that is what Isaiah says. Look at verse 7. These also stagger from wine, they reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer, they're befuddled with wine. They reel from beer, they stagger when seeing visions, they stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit, and there is not a spot without filth. Can you picture the scene? It's not, it's not a nice scene to, to picture, actually, is it? But what makes this scene particularly horrific is that the people who are throwing up, the people who are drunk, are meant to be the spiritual leaders of the people. Can I say, throughout the Bible, drunkenness is always condemned. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, there's never a right place or a right time for being drunk, no matter who you are or whatever the occasion is. But by definition, leaders lead. And so for the spiritual leaders to be living like this, the effect, it wasn't just filth and vomit, it was spiritual disaster for the people. Not only were the spiritual leaders drunk, but their foolishness was seen in the way that they despised the word of God. They they mocked those who claim to teach the word of God. That that's what's going on in verse, uh, in verse 9, chapter 28. Just have a little look down at that. that those who, 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 are speak, who actually speak the word of God are being, are being mocked. The, the leaders think God's message is that, that, that they're hearing is so, so childish, isn't it? It's babyish. You can all the, almost hear them sniggering as someone like Isaiah tries to speak the word of God plainly. Who, who is he trying to teach? To whom is he explaining the message? To children weaned on milk, to those just taken from the breast. They, they think it's a foolish message. That they, they mock it. They mock not just those who speak it, but they mock the message itself. They, they say in effect, the message to us, you know what it sounds like? Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. People who speak the word of God, that's what they're like. Blah, blah, 
blah. That is the, that's kind of the feeling of, of, um, of verse 10. For us, it's do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. That, they're kind of mocking. They're saying it's just, a, it's just a silly message that you're giving. Do this, do that. They scoff at the word of God. Go verse 14. Therefore, I hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, you who rule his people in Jerusalem. Leadership matters. And so when spiritual leaders mock God's word, when they despise it, when they refuse to live under God's words, the people they are supposed to be leading are in trouble. What we're seeing is unsurprising that in the New Testament, in books like Titus and Timothy, when we read about the requirements to be an elder, an overseer, a leader of God's people, of God's church, we're told in both of their descriptions that the overseers are not to be given to drunkenness and they are to hold on to the word of God and to encourage sound doctrine and be able to teach it and refute those who oppose it. If you're a, a regular here at the church, if you're a partner particularly of, uh, of Cornerstone, can, can I ask you to, to pray for Tom and I as the, the leaders of the church? That, that we, would, we would lead like that. That, that we would be people who would, who would hold on to the word of God and not turn away from it. That we would be people who in God's strength attempt to, to live it out. And can I say to you, if you are a partner particularly, don't, don't just pray for us, but if you think that we are teaching things that, that aren't according to sound doctrine, that we've, we've left God's word behind, we've, we're mocking it, please challenge us. Please bring it to the church because foolish leaders lead people into judgment. That's what's happening in the time of Isaiah. Therefore, the second woe is aimed at the leaders and the, and the people alike. Woe, judgments coming. As we've uh, already seen, judgment on the people through the, through the instrument of Assyria is growing nearer and nearer. Woe, watch out, grieve, be concerned, says Isaiah time and time again, that the judgment of the army of Assyria it is fast approaching. But that judgment is connected with a greater judgment that Isaiah sometimes speaks of. Again, if, you, if you've read the book of Isaiah, it's sometimes, let's be honest, it's sometimes a little bit confusing. And one of the things that makes it appear confusing is this. He sometimes seems to be speaking something that's, that's about to happen. It's kind of on the doorstep. Assyria is about to arrive. And then he seems to speak about something kind of at the end of time. Sometimes he seems to be speaking about one particular nation. Sometimes then he just speaks about all nations. And you kind of think, Isaiah, where, where, where are you looking at when you speak about judgment? I know there's a few uh, Cornerstone regulars who are off on uh, skiing holidays uh, soon. I'm, I'm not jealous, honestly. Um, but one of, the, one of the, the great things about going somewhere like the Alps to go skiing is, uh, is the amazing views, like one on the screen there. 
there's a, a picture of a, of a mountain range. And, and when you look at a, a view like that, there's obviously more than one mountain peak in view, isn't there? You, you can see more than one mountain peak. And, and if you're looking at that view, it would be possible though, wouldn't it, to, to describe kind of various peaks in the same way. You, you can kind of see them at the same time. You can say, okay, that's kind of snowy and it's, it's high up and it's, uh, I should have thought about the description a little bit more, but that, those kind of things. You, you, can, you can describe them the same way. You can describe the, the overall scene. But in, in, in reality, the, the peaks are different. There are differences. There, there's actually a great distance between those mountain peaks. And, and the furthest peak is, is quite obviously bigger, greater than the nearer ones. As Isaiah speaks of judgment coming on Israel and Judah in his generation through the Assyrians, he, he moves very easily to speak of the final judgment to come, the, the final judgment on all nations at the end of time. He has, if you like, got them, got them both in view. And because they're similar, because they're connected, he can, he can easily do that. He can easily go from one to the other. But the final judgment is, of course, bigger and is further away in time from, from Isaiah's perspective. God's acts of judgment aren't unrelated. That's why this section, this section of Isaiah's preaching, it's, it's focused on the coming judgment, but it ends, chapter 34, just flick over to chapter 34, it ends with Isaiah speaking about the final judgment to come. God's final judgment at the end of time. As you begin to read chapter 35, suddenly there's no mention of Judah or Israel or the nation of Assyria. It's a message instead for all the nations, all the people. Chapter 34, come near you nations, listen, pay attention you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all the nations. His wrath is on all the armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he, he says that God's judgments in the past, most especially in the life of Israel, do you know why, the, do you know why they happened? They were given as warnings and examples to us and to others of the final judgment to come. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Paul says this, These things, that's the judgments, these things happened to them as examples. They were written down as warnings to us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. So as we, as we read Isaiah, as we read of his warnings of a, of a coming judgment in their lifetime, we need to hear the warning of a greater judgment 
that is still to come. Which is why the third woe is so important for us to hear. Woe to false solutions. As the storm of judgment, uh, as it approaches, the, the leaders and the people of Judah, they, they appear confident that actually they've got a solution. They've got a way to survive. In verse uh, 15 of chapter 28, turn back there. Verse 15, they, they, they boast that they've made a, a covenant with death. The, the people of Judah, they, they, they should have been in a covenant relationship with God, just like a, a husband and wife, a, a loving commitment to each other. But they say actually that they've made a, another, another covenant, that their unfaithfulness to the Lord is seen, that they've made a covenant with someone else, someone that they think can deliver them from death. Verse 15, you, you boast, we've entered into a covenant with death, with the realm of the death, we've made an agreement. Um, the, he, he goes on to say, as you, as you, we won't read it all now, but as he goes on to say, that, that this, this judgment is going to come sweeping down, but we're going to be fine. We're going to be safe. We're going to be secure. It's likely that the covenant that Isaiah is, is speaking of, the covenant with death, refers to their their hoped agreement with the nation of Egypt. That's certainly described frequently in this section. They, they, they were going to turn to the, to the powerful nation of, of Egypt for protection from Assyria. But it's clear that that, that solution was a, a false solution. Chapter 31 the beginning there, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots, in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel. Egypt might appear to be big and powerful, but it can't give Judah the protection that it needs. It will, it will fall short, the covenant of death won't last. I don't know if you've ever slept in a bed that's too short for you. Or, or maybe you've, you've, you've kind of used a blanket to try to keep warm, but it's basically just too small. Very frustrating, isn't it? You're trying to keep warm, but you've just got a this small little blanket. And you can kind of wrap it around your feet and your legs, but then your top half's cold. Or, or you can pull it up and you can wrap it around your, your shoulders, but your, your feet are freezing. It's not up to the job. And that's what Egypt will be like. That's, uh, in actual fact, how Egypt is described back in chapter 28, verse, verse 20. The bed is too short to stretch out on. The blanket is too narrow to wrap around you. Egypt won't provide the protection that the people need. Turning to Egypt is a false solution. When it comes... To our, to our world, to us today, 2020, when we think of that final judgment to come, many people look to, to false solutions to get through it. Some, some wrongly think, many, many people think in our culture, 
that it won't, to, to quote verse 19, be that terrifying. So there's nothing really to be worried about anyway. Other, others pin their hopes, many pin their hopes, I'd suggest, in just the fact that they're, they're kind of decent people, do, do some good works, acts of kindness, they've lived a, a good life. Others put their confidence in religious observance. But all those are, are false solutions. They'll leave people short, not covered, unprotected. There is one way for the people then and for people today to escape the coming judgment. And that's simply by turning to God, to trust in him, to seek his protection, his mercy. And that's why after all the woes, it's amazing just to finish with this wow. Despite all that we've seen, Wow, God is so, so compassionate. We're not to understand all the woes and mournings that we read of in the book of Isaiah, that the Lord delights in acts of judgment. That somehow he's he's kind of rubbing his hands in heaven as he sees the Assyrians marching down on his commands. He's not enjoying his view from from heaven. Verse 21 in, in chapter 28 reminds us that that bringing judgment is the Lord's unusual work. It's his alien work. He he takes no no pleasure in it. But the Lord God, (laughs) he loves and he longs to show compassion. After all the rejection... All of that rejection, year upon year, decade upon decade. All of the foolishness. All of the the trusting in false solutions. This is what we read in chapter 30. Listen to this. This is a wow statement. Chapter 30, verse 18. Yet, yet, after all this happened, yet, listen to this. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait on him. What a promise. He loves to show compassion. He loves to be gracious. He's going to rise up. He's going to stand up. He's going to make himself big. In order to show compassion to the people. No, second part of the verse, he, he is a God of justice. He won't, he won't sweep the people's rebellion under the carpet. He won't pretend that it didn't happen. In, in his justice, he has sent the judgment that they deserve. But in his grace, he'll also give them something they don't deserve. A way out a solution. If the people will just turn to him, he will protect them. They can find salvation and joy in him alone. It's a wonderful thing. Do you find it a little bit strange though? Do you find it strange that the same Lord 
sends the judgment in his justice and at the same time he offers protection from it. Do you find that a strange thing? It's the same Lord. <laughs> the same Lord who, who in his justice is, is sending the judgment is the same Lord who says, I'll protect you from it. It is a strange thing. We should think it at one level strange. Because God alone is perfect in his justice. And yet he's perfect in his grace and compassion. Just as chapter 34 looks forward to a, to a greater judgment, so chapter 35, the end of this section, it ends with a, a description of a greater joy, a greater salvation, greater than the, the hope of salvation that was offered to the people of Isaiah's time. It points forward to, to the joy of being protected from the final judgment to come. It points forward to Jesus. In fact, is used in the New Testament to speak of Jesus. You see, these messages of judgment and salvation, of, of woes and wows, they're, they're not just found in the, the book of Isaiah. We see the, the judgment and the grace side by side other times too. And we see God's justice and God's compassion most perfectly as Jesus died. As Jesus dies on the cross, God's, God's judgment on human rebellion, foolishness, comes down. He sends the judgment down. But in his compassion... In his kindness, in his mercy, it doesn't fall on people like us. It falls on Jesus. As Isaiah will go on to say in a few chapters' time, he, that is Jesus, was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment, <laughs> the punishment that brought us peace was on him. As we finish, can I say, as I said last week, I say it in love, that these chapters remind us that, that God's final judgment, it will arrive one day. It is getting closer. The, these chapters, this book, Isaiah's warnings, are to warn us of that approaching storm. And they tell us too that there is one solution. One solution. To trust in the Lord. To trust in Jesus. Who died in the place of people like us. To offer us perfect protection when that storm arrives. God's justice, God's grace, side by side. You can and you must trust him and him alone when it comes 
to judgment. And maybe, maybe as you see his compassion, his grace, his self-sacrifice, perhaps too we'll come to see that we can trust him in every area of our life. When life is hard and when it's difficult, we can trust a God who would save his people in such a way as this. People of Zion, people who live in Jerusalem, people of Portsmouth, weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry to him for help. Let's do that together now as we pray. Father God, we we come before you and we confess uh, that often we we live in rebellion, often we're, we're foolish, often we ignore your word, we're We're proud, we trust in things other than you. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of justice. You don't let sin go unpunished. Lord, we're glad that you're a God like that. We want to live in a a universe when, when terrible things happen and no one's held accountable, no one's concerned. Thank you that your justice is perfect. But we thank you too that you're gracious and compassionate because we recognize that our judgment should fall on us. So we thank you that we can turn to you. We can trust in the Lord Jesus and we can have confidence of protection when that final judgment comes. Thank you that as Jesus died, we see your justice and your grace side by side. And as we thank you for that grace and that goodness and your justice, we thank you that we can trust you in every area of our life, in every moment of every day. Thank you that your ways are always good. And thank you that you are ultimately leading your people to the joy of your eternal rest. Help us today and this week to live in the light of these things, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.